0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf.
2: It is good to be with you, Chris. I'm excited because every once in a while on the show, we get to invite some real thought leaders to join us for conversations about what's happening in the securities regulatory and enforcement space. We've been fortunate to have the leaders of some industry organizations over the years that we've been doing the podcast. We had Kirsten Wegner from Modern Markets Initiative. We had Jim Toes from Security Traders Association. Definitely recommend the listeners go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't. But it's really nice to get these folks' perspectives on how the regulatory landscape may be shifting, or in some cases, maybe disproportionately affecting their members or the groups or the industries that they represent. And I think one of the market segments that we've heard a lot about over the last couple of years in particular, I won't say it's only during uh, Chair Gensler's time at the commission, but maybe more during Chair Gensler's time (laughs) at the commission, uh, is the, the private equity and hedge fund space. The SEC really seems to have its sights squarely set on private funds. And recent headlines warn that private funds are near the top of the SEC's exam priorities and that the SEC and DOJ will keep ramping up enforcement around private funds. And of course, much has been written about the wave of SEC rulemaking proposals that seem to be targeting private funds in particular. So those are the kinds of things that we want to talk about today. We've got another excellent thought leader in the space to come and share some of his views on what's happening with private funds, what's happening at the commission, and maybe where we could be doing a better job. And so with that, Chris, I want to hand it back to you to introduce our guest.
1: Yeah, so we're honored to be joined by Brian Corbett. He is MFA's, the Managed Fund Association's president and CEO, and is a veteran of Washington and Wall Street. Before joining MFA, he was a senior executive at the Carlyle Group, where he served as managing director in the corporate private equity segment and head of the firm's One Carlyle Global Investment Resources Group. Brian also previously managed Carlyle's U.S. government and regulatory issues and developed legislative and regulatory strategies relating to all of Carlyle's business segments. Going back a bit further, Brian served in the George W. Bush administration as a special assistant to the president for economic policy and as the senior advisor to Deputy Secretary Robert Kimmett at the Treasury Department. He also served as majority counsel on the Senate Banking Committee. And now, Brian, adding to that illustrious resume, you will be a guest of the Insecurities podcast. Brian, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. and look forward to our conversation.
1: Brian, we mentioned that you are the President and CEO of MFA, and we want to set a baseline for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the organization or its work. Uh, The Managed Fund Association is described as, quote, the voice of the global alternative asset management industry. Just as a definitional question to get us started, when we talk about that alternative asset management industry, what does that cover?
3: MFA's mission is to promote the ability of alternative asset managers to raise capital, invest it, and generate returns for their allocator clients. Our membership is very broad and includes traditional hedge fund strategies, funds that invest out of more evergreen, open-ended type structures, as well as funds who are increasingly using private equity-like structures for their investments. Folks that are doing publics and privates, as well as those who are focused on private credit and direct lending to corporates.
1: So tell us a bit about what MFA does to provide value to its membership. How do you serve those folks in the association?
3: Sure. So so we our mission is to promote the ability of alternative asset managers to raise capital, invest it, and generate returns for their allocators, those pension funds, endowments, and foundations. And as I mentioned earlier, our membership is broad. So it includes traditional hedge fund strategies of all types: the quants, multi-strats, long short macros as well as firms who are increasingly focused on private investments, both on the equity side and increasingly private credit investments. So we're seeing a lot of growth in that area. And what we do is we broadly represent the industry in two areas. One is on advocacy. We are the lead industry body in shaping the rules, regulations under which managers invest. So we deal with all regulators in the U.S. as well as in London, And in Brussels, where we have offices in both cities, so we're very active globally. So think of rulemaking processes, legislative initiatives where the industry is being targeted. We are very involved, including a lot of tax issues. Uh, In addition, we convene the industry and really see ourselves as helping to create an ecosystem for alternative investors. Uh, We have a conference series. We have forums. We bring together our members to talk about issues that cut across legal, cyber, HR issues and really see ourselves as helping to promote best practices and help support the growth of the industry overall.
2: That's helpful context, Brian, thank you. And and hopefully our listeners understand a little bit better about what it is that you do, what MFA does. If not, you can always check out the website to learn more. There's actually a lot of helpful information there, but we wanna get into some of the substance a little bit and, and maybe I tipped my hand early, but one of the things we wanna talk about is SEC rulemaking? It's actually something we talk a lot about here on the podcast. We have on multiple episodes talked about Chair Gensler's or the Commission's aggressive rulemaking agenda. And a number of those rulemaking proposals target the alternative asset management industry in particular. For example, MFA has penned comment letters on the private fund advisor rule, which departs from the typical disclosure based regulatory regime and implements a prohibition-based regime that limits agreements between a fund and its limited partners. There is also a Reg NMS proposal, which addresses tick sizes and order execution, and a proposed rulemaking that would change the definition of dealer, among many others. So Brian, can you give us a sense of just how many rules or proposals are floating out there that would impact your membership, and how many of those are approaching final rule status?
3: Yeah, no, we've seen a wave of rulemaking that is really unprecedented for alternative asset managers. I think by our count, there's over 20 plus rules that have been proposed during Chair Gensler's term targeting alternative asset managers, and we'll get into some of the, the different rules and what they're targeting. But it's really surprising to see this type of regulatory onslaught that's not driven by a congressional statute. When we saw a lot of rulemaking Mm -hmm. post Dodd-Frank, Congress had taken action and given the SEC a clear directive to advance. We don't have that here. We also don't have a major market crisis like we had in 08, where the regulators needed to step in and take action. So this is a bit of unprecedented and, and frankly, a a rulemaking agenda that's really driven by Chair Gensler and his idea of how markets should work. Uh, In terms of rules that are going final, We're starting to see some of the rules trickle out. Recently, Form PF came out. The SEC made some changes. We expect over the next six to nine months to see more of these rules come out. In particular, we are very focused on the private funds proposal, and we think that is likely to come in the near term and a bit sooner than maybe some of the other rules.
2: Interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point about when the commission chooses to undertake rulemaking in the absence of a congressional mandate to do so. I think it's been a particularly interesting right. talking point in in this commission. And for whatever reason, they seem to be willing to do that with respect to the alternative asset management industry, the private fund space yeah. more more than others. And I, I wonder if you have a sense of what's driving that. I mean, why is the chair so focused on your members' space?
3: Yeah, it's hard to divine his motivation and intention here. And and believe me, we've tried. And I think it comes down to really three factors. And and this is just our sort of piecing this together based on actions, things he said, and and what we see coming out of the commission. I, I think one is he believes alternative investment managers have gotten too big and are very risky. He harkens back to long-term capital management as a guidepost for the hedge fund industry, right? That was 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Risk management has changed. The industry's adopted practices to prevent that. Counterparty risk management is better. A lot has changed, but still, that's in the back of his mind, and he has noted that publicly. That's a bit of a touchstone for him when he thinks about alternative asset managers. I think the second issue is cost. I think he believes that the alternative asset industry uh, charges too much. And he is very interested in compressing fees and trying to redistribute some of that those fees to investors. And that is a very clear motivation. And I think thirdly, he hasn't said this, but it's been a little implied, which is there's too many alternative asset managers. He has talked about a trend towards centralization in finance and suggesting that could be called for here. I mean, there's over, what, 3,500 hedge funds alone, not counting all of the different other alternative asset managers that are out there. So the the desire to maybe see some consolidation here might be one of the motivations. We've raised with him the issue that these rules are going to create huge costs, both compliance costs, resource requirements, and small managers are not gonna be able to stay in business. It's gonna be hard for new funds to launch. So as a result of a lot of this, the bigger going to get bigger. And in some ways he, he kind of seems okay with that. So I think too risky, pay too much, and too many.
1: In preparing for today's show, Brian, we talked a bit about uh, some of those rules and how they're going to or, or may impact and reshape the industry. And, and some of the things we talked about were asset managers' books, uh, their operations, and right. the relationships with limited partners as those areas where that reshaping may take a, a good or potentially negative tact uh, for the industry. So let's kind of walk through those each in detail. Yeah. So to begin with, what are your concerns or what are your thoughts about reshaping the industry as it relates to the manager's book itself?
3: Yeah, no, Chris, it's it's a good point. And, and what we've seen is that the SEC's rulemaking, it really does touch every aspect of a manager's business, how it invests, how it operates, and how it attracts capital and its relationships with its its allocators so first with respect to a manager's book uh, you see a number of new proposals around equity disclosures swap disclosures we've seen a number of proposals in the the equity capital markets area where we think the sec is looking to require managers to disclose more information more frequently and at a more granular level And our concern with this is that it makes it hard for a manager to build a book without it being exposed to the public. Um, In particular, activist strategies are very focused on building positions in a corporate where they can promote better governance or call out fraud and change management in a way that that promotes a good for the overall market. What the SEC is proposing makes that very hard. It's almost like the SEC is trying to push the scale and the balance in favor of corporate management at the expense of fund managers and the good that they try to promote within markets. So we're very concerned about some of these proposals that will expose managers' positions for what we think is little public benefit and will create more harm than good.
2: It's interesting thinking about how the role of activist investors maybe is driving the SEC's thinking in in, in some respects and, and could lead to bad results for the broader industry. One of the things that you've mentioned a few times already on this podcast, Brian, is just how the rules have the potential to impact firms or funds operations. So tell us a little bit more about that. Operationally, what are the potential pitfalls from some of these rulemaking proposals?
3: Yeah, this is the area where we see a lot of activity from the SEC, and it's very broad. Some of the proposals that many of your listeners will be familiar with uh, are things like Form PF, uh, a recent proposal around cyber requirements, outsourcing requirements. Uh, We've seen proposals with respect to managers potentially having to register as broker-dealers based on certain trading activities that historically have been promoted for investment advisors. Now, some of those activities are going to trigger a broker-dealer-like reporting requirement. So it's very broad in scope. And these rules are going to require a lot of compliance cost, a lot of resourcing. And, and frankly, some of the rules as proposed just don't work given how markets are structured today. And one example is the recent custody proposal where the SEC is looking to broaden it beyond securities to include all assets. How does a custody proposal, how does that apply to a private credit loan or to other transactions that are more agreement-based rather than security-based? So we think there are a number of challenges with these rules. And frankly, the aggregate benefit of these we think is minimal compared to the significant cost that this is going to generate, which we think will deter the ability of fund managers to, to operate and generate returns for their allocators.
1: So moving into kind of that third area, Brian, that we talked about prior to, the, to recording today is really that relationship between asset managers and their general or limited partners. How is that relationship going to be impacted by some of these rulemaking proposals?
3: Yes. There's one rule in particular called the private fund proposal. And for the first time, the SEC is interjecting itself in the middle of the negotiations between sophisticated GPs and sophisticated LPs. Congress passed a statute that carved out private funds and really set up a regime whereby sophisticated parties would negotiate the terms and conditions under which investments were made. And for the first time, the SEC is getting in the middle of that, and they're prohibiting certain terms of conditions. They're changing liability standards. They're changing information rights in a way that we think uh, is unprecedented. And and frankly, we don't think it's supported by existing statutory authority. Um, And as we talk to more and more LPs, and as our managers hear from more LPs, I think the allocator communities beginning to realize that the breadth of this rule may have some unintended negative consequences for them. For example, as part of this rule, Chair Gensler is proposing to eliminate side letters. Right, A lot of managers would be fine with eliminating side letters, but a lot of LPs need that in order to be able to invest in funds. So in trying to really create a more mutual fund-like reporting regime for private funds, I think the SEC may have unintentionally created some real problems for the allocator community. So this is one rule that is definitely at the top of our list. We're watching this closely. We feel like this is coming in the near term and we are prepared to really use all of the tools at our disposal to address it, including potentially litigating, depending on what's in the final rule.
2: So, so thinking about the things that MFA can do with respect to SEC rulemaking proposals, I mean, I, I noted earlier that, that MFA has submitted several comment letters on SEC rulemaking proposals. Right. I guess I wonder what you think your members can do, if anything, to help in that regard, to help get the message across to the commission and the chair. I mean, litigation, that's always out there as an option, right? But preferably sure. these things get resolved before you end up there. So I wonder what you would encourage your members or others to do.
3: Right, so so in, in dealing with a rulemaking, we take a very broad approach at MFA. It, we'll work with our members to develop our policy positions. We'll work with our members to develop our engagement strategy with the SEC. How do we go in to talk to the SEC on the back of a letter that we've submitted? The letter's really just the, the starting point. And there's a whole educational effort around meeting with the chair, his staff, the the various division directors and and career staff at the SEC to talk about these issues. And uh, many of our members will go in on their own and talk specifically about the impact on their fund and and some of their investors. So those conversations happen. And it's not just with the SEC. There's also an effort to educate policymakers on Capitol Hill. Congress has an important angle in this rulemaking. They have have oversight responsibility. They hold the SEC accountable for the rules that come out. And in situations where the industry firmly believes that the SEC is overstepping congressional authority, Congress has a a vested interest in understanding what's happening. So not only is MFA active, many of our members are active as well. And and having those conversations at the commission with Congress and with, with other third parties, including many institutional investor groups that that want to see this rule changed.
2: Yeah, that, that's helpful context to understand how you're engaging with policymakers. And of course, it's helpful to hear about some of the particular proposals that are on MFA's uh, minds collectively. Yeah, I, I want to zoom out a, a little bit, right? Because we've talked about some of the particular rules. And you can imagine that any one of those rules will have its costs and challenges but I'm wondering, when you think, at the, think of the whole package, yeah, how did these rulemaking proposals impact the industry more broadly? How does it make it harder for managers to do their job, to raise capital, yeah. to generate returns for clients, just yeah. to manage their funds day in and day out?
3: No, and we often do get lost in some of these individual rules and, and the challenges with them. Uh, but you're right to, to take a, a, a bigger Picture perspective, because it is going to have a few major consequences for the industry. I think, first off, it will make it a lot harder for managers to raise capital and, and generate returns for their investors. Um, it's not just the cost. It's potentially them having to change strategies, having to, tr- to change... Um, Position sizes, things like that, which could come as a result of the rules and will affect returns that they're trying to generate for their allocator. So that's something we're very focused on, as well as raising capital. Raising capital is going to become more challenging after these rules, as the SEC is clearly interested in trying to change the negotiating dynamic around fees and expenses, and that's going to lead to challenging discussions for for many funds, particularly those smaller funds and new launches that are trying to get going in in a market that is very competitive. I'd say the second major impact will be around the ability of funds to enter the space. Right As, As I just alluded to, new launches are going to be very challenging. It used to be. You raise 100 million to 250 million, you could launch a fund, small team, you're active, you're agile, you grow over time. Now, with the burden associated with all of these rules, what we're hearing is that it's gonna be very hard to launch with anything less than a billion. So, you are gonna make it very hard for people to hang their shingle and start their own fund, which means People will join larger platforms and the bigger going to get bigger. And that has a clear competitive impact on our markets where I think we want to create a situation where we encourage more managers to come to market. We encourage active managers who are involved with price discovery and providing liquidity. It's a it makes for a more vibrant market. The SEC is making that challenging. And then lastly, from the allocator perspective, they're going to have less choice and less access to funds with fewer funds in the market a lot of allocators like to invest in, in new launches emerging managers there's going to be a lot fewer those opportunities are going to go away and the competitive dynamic to get into existing funds where they want to invest is going to, it's just going to get a lot harder because those funds are going to have more and more demand for their product uh, and people aren't going to be able to get in. So so less access and less choice for a lot of allocators as a result of these rules.
1: Brian, one of the things you talked about there, too, is kind of that strategy piece and mm-hmm. that there are specific elements of these rulemaking proposals that may be dictating the legitimacy the appropriateness of those specific strategies Uh, talk to us about how those strategies might be under siege in the details how how focused is the sec coming at the specifics of a strategy more so than some of the broader industry things we've talked about
3: yeah no we, we talked a little bit earlier about the impact of some of the equity rule proposals and the security based swap proposal on activist strategy that's certainly one area where we're very focused the other area is around how funds trade treasuries Macro funds, bigger multi-strats who who are active in the treasury markets. Post Dodd-Frank, banks became somewhat constrained in their ability to be active in the treasury markets. A lot of the trading activity moved to funds, and the funds have proven to be a very positive force in the treasury markets. One of the rule proposals that the SEC has set a threshold of $25 billion in trading during the course of a month which may sound like a lot but it's really not when you're talking about buying and selling Selling, each day during the course of a month and this rule doesn't just apply to funds it also applies to a lot of corporates who use treasuries for cash management perspective and have very active finance offices so the problem with that is once you're regulated as a broker dealer It really blows up your fund structure because you have to keep permanent capital. Uh, You can't have redemptions for allocators. It changes your relationship with the banks. Uh, You're no longer a client of the banks. You become a competitor with the bank, Mm. and it changes a a lot of the duty that the bank would have to a fund. So we believe investment advisors are already regulated. The SEC has a lot of information. This is a misguided rule to require them to register as broker-dealers as well this is an important time for us in our markets as we're coming out of the pandemic, interest rate moves. The last thing we want to do is deter buyers and sellers from entering the treasury market. And that's exactly what this rule will do. And I can't believe that's really what the Fed and Treasury want to see as a result of an SEC rulemaking.
1: And to talk a little bit broader. You mentioned some of the locations so, that MFA uh, so, is. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, Chris, I mean, I wanted to stay on the U.S. for a second. and Go ahead. We've focused a lot on the SC, mm-hmm. but I think one area where we are looking for increased activity from the government is really in, in as a result of Silicon Valley Bank and, and what happened a few months ago. Yeah, uh, We are seeing an uptick in regulatory activity by the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which includes the Fed and Treasury and all the banking mm-hmm. regulators. So there's a growing interest in how alternative asset managers are providing non-bank financing to corporates. Uh, The growth of private credit, direct lending has really become more of an issue that uh, the SEC, the Fed, the Treasury are are trying to get more information on. So I I think one area where we will be very active as an association is uh, engaging in these ongoing policy discussions around private credit and non-bank financing. Uh, Recently, the Bank of England Uh, made a note about increased examinations and and supervisory uh, actions regarding private credit firms, non-bank, financial intermediaries. So we will be very focused on that area.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's obviously something that has ripped right from the headlines, Brian, over the past six months or so, as regional banking has really taken, taken into focus, right, from a variety of different specific instances, as well as how it fits in generally. So that's good to hear that some of those uh, issues are being considered from the association as well. But also speaking broader, right, in the international world, the Managed Fund Association doesn't just sit here in the U.S., but you guys are also very involved in the EU and the U.K. What are some of those international policy issues that maybe we don't think about a lot here in the East Coast bubble or even inside the Beltway, but, uh, you know, across the pond, if you will, over in Europe that MFA thinks about and that its membership is dealing with?
3: Yeah, a lot of these issues are... are global in nature and as capital flows across borders very easily. So while the vast majority of our members are headquartered in the US, they're active in, in global markets around the world. And they're certainly raising capital in global markets as well and from an international investor base. So we are focused on a couple of top line priorities right now that really reflect the global nature of our industry. One is around how our managers uh, raise capital in the EU. There's something called the AIFMD. It it impacts how managers go into different countries and raise capital and their ability to delegate some of their investment decision-making outside of the EU to other entities. So we're very involved there. That's an important piece of legislation in the EU. The other area where we're very focused is in the UK. Post-Brexit, we've seen a real willingness by the current UK government to think expansively about their capital markets and how to make london more of a destination for global investors and one area of recent activity is around short selling so historically the eu had a short sale regime that was focused on individual manager disclosures whereas the us has been moving towards more of an aggregate disclosure regime by issuer so a very different approach when you disclose short positions by individual manager You create a lot of situations like GameStop, where where you make a short position public, and it's easy for people to pile in and and, and try and move it one way or the other. Uh, Recently, the UK has signaled that they are going to move to more of a US-like approach in short selling, which is towards an aggregate issuer approach. And that's the direction the SEC is heading, which the industry is very supportive of. MFA first raised this issue with the UK we've worked at during the past year, and we're we're very happy to see that the UK is looking to make their market more competitive, and this change to to short sale disclosures is an important issue.
2: Brian, thank you for that perspective on on how MFA is uh, sort of working across the pond, as we say. Um, Before we let you go, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about any events MFA has coming up and how people can learn more about the organization generally.
3: Sure. So we, as I mentioned earlier, one of our key areas of focus is how we convene the alternative asset manager ecosystem. So we have a series of events. We have one coming up in London on focused on legal compliance. We'll have one beginning of the year that's a, a more of a cap intro style event in, in Miami. So we're very active on the event calendar and listeners can check our website to see what's coming and when. We've also built an interesting A website called Investing in Opportunity that has a lot of information showing the different state-based allocations to the hedge fund industry. So if you go to this link, you click on Arizona, you can see X billion of capital invested by Arizona-based pension funds, endowments, and foundations in the hedge fund industry. So you really get a sense of how broad the investment allocator base is for hedge funds in particular. And you can get a sense of some of the returns that they are receiving that they then put to use to add more scholarships, to build more hospitals, et cetera. So it's a, it's a really interesting source of data on the footprint of the allocator base in hedge funds across the U.S. I'll have to check that out because
2: I don't think I've seen anything like that. But it sounds like a very helpful and, and certainly interesting data set.
1: Excellent. Well, well, Brian, thank you for taking some time to join us here on the Insecurities Podcast. We appreciate getting a a lens into what the Managed Funds Association thinks about on a regular basis, what they advocate for and how they provide to their members, uh, as well as some of the intricacies of the challenges you face in leading that crew uh, in this changing regulatory environment. So we appreciate you taking the time, Brian. Thanks so much.
3: Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate it. And thank you for the time.
1: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, Brian Corbett of the Managed Funds Association. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA,
2: And I'm at Enforce update.
1: Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well everyone and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, InSecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of InSecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.